Thanks, Colton. Thank you, Marcy. Sound like you've been to Hawaii the way you're playing the piano tonight. For crying out loud. We're taking a church trip there next time, okay? <laughs> well, you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel. If you weren't here last week, there is a little chart and graph. If you'd like one, they're on the table down here. It is helpful. And I recognize that there are various views of the end times, but we're just searching for the biblical view of the end times, the only one that matters. And we're going to pursue that even more tonight in Joel chapter 3. We will finish off Joel chapter 3, a little bit bit of a different sermon tonight, a lot of reading of the text and trying to fit it in because Joel is now clearly looking to a future day and he's going to fill in some details for us about some specific events in the future. Um, But that chart that I put down there is helpful anytime you read the Old Testament prophets, specifically the minor prophets, but also the major prophets for that matter. Next week. We will begin the book of Amos, Lord willing. And so we're going to get another dose of uh, present reality in Israel, followed by future restoration of Israel in the book of Amos. So if you want to begin reading Amos, you can. Very helpful book, very applicable to today's time and certainly what we see going on in our culture. Uh, But tonight, uh, Joel 3 is in front of us. And if you've been here, right... The theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And we've learned the day of the Lord means both a specific 24-hour period, likely a reference to the actual coming of Christ that we will see again tonight in the text very specifically. But also it's a reference to a broader period of time that, um, in my estimation, is at least a thousand plus seven years long because the day of the Lord would include the seven-year tribulation period plus the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so we're looking at a broad period of time in the book of Joel, but also a narrow aspect as well. And so tonight we'll finish off Joel chapter 3, and we're really going to focus on, as I said, a very specific event of the end times that Joel's going to give us a great preview of. In fact, Joel's details of this day are are probably the greatest details of this event in in all the Bible, and we'll fit that into the New Testament. We're going to be all over Scripture again uh, tonight, looking at what Joel is addressing in the event that he's describing to us. Now, when you think about the end times, the word Armageddon is out there. People speak of Armageddon. Now, the, the, the dictionary definition of Armageddon is this. If you look it up in an English dictionary, quote, the place where the last battle of good and evil will be fought, right? That's just a straight off of whatever word processing software I have on my computer. That's how they define Armageddon. That's not the biblical definition of Armageddon, by the way. Um, Armageddon is not the final battle between good and evil. If you look at Scripture and you look specifically at Revelation 20, the final battle between good and evil will happen at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. There will be a war of Gog and Magog where Satan will be released from prison, rally some troops, and try to knock off the Lord one more time. That's the final battle. But when people speak of Armageddon, they're most likely speaking of events related to the end time, specifically to the seven-year tribulation period. And certainly Armageddon does refer to that. Armageddon is a battle, in fact, we're going to see tonight, it's a series of battles at the end of days that come at the end of a seven-year tribulation period. 
We've been looking at this and trying to fit all these pieces of the puzzle together. And Armageddon is clearly an event toward the end. If you still have that chart, I put Armageddon right there, right to coincide with the second coming. Because the second coming will end Armageddon. Uh, When Christ comes, he will bring all the series of battles related to that final battle of the seven-year tribulation period to a close. And Joel 3 is going to give us a look at an event, really a series of events that are part of Armageddon. Now, the obvious question to that, to any person that's probably hearing that, would be, Joel, this guy that wrote in 800 B.C., is going to give me details of an event that's still future to me today? And that's exactly what we're going to see tonight. Joel writes about the end of the days, the end of time, specifically the day of the Lord. And as the day of the Lord approaches, the lead-up to that will be a series of events that is commonly called Armageddon. Now, why was Joel given this privilege? I mean, who is he, and why would this privilege come to him? Well, Joel's addressed a lot of end times events. We've already looked at Joel's, what Joel has in common with the book of Revelation. We saw that last week, black and white. So many things that Joel wrote about, John wrote about in 90 A.D. that were almost exact replicas of what Joel wrote around 800 B.C. And the reason Joel was given that privilege is, simply put, Joel had no idea the timetable of the Lord. Joel was a prophet of God, called by God to deliver God's word to God's people. He had no idea of when the Lord would judge Israel. He had no idea of when the Lord would ultimately restore Israel. Joel was just given a word from the Spirit. The Spirit, as the New Testament said, carried him along as he wrote the word. And so we've looked at the book of Joel and we've learned that there was a day of the Lord like event in his day. It wasn't the actual day of the Lord in Joel's day. It was a plague of locusts that was a preview, a shadow, a type of an ultimate day of the Lord to come. And so Joel took that event. The Spirit inspired him to say, here's an event in Israel's history, a real event. And now I'm going to preview through Joel a greater event that will come. There will be present judgment in Israel in 800 B.C. And there will also be a future judgment of Israel in a day in the future. But on the same lines, Joel also told Israel, if you will repent in 800 B.C., God will bless you. He will restore you. And then Joel takes that small restoration of Israel in his day and then forecasts that into a future restoration of Israel someday in the future that is still future to us in 2023 A.D. But Joel had no idea when the greater fulfillment would come. He had no idea when Israel would be judged in a greater way or when it would be restored in a greater way. His role was to communicate God's truth. Same with me. I don't have any idea of the timetable of the Lord. It could be 10,000 years from now. All I'm called to do is relate God's word to God's people. And that was Joel's uh, mission in life, and he did it. And his book has been preserved. But it also gives us great insight into some details of what is ahead, even to this world in which we live. We talked last week, the end time is not the end of all time. It's the end of the current world, the current sin-filled world. How will the sin-filled curse world come to an end? And so when we're looking at these things, this is what we're talking about. We're looking at the end of the current world order, the current world reality where sin rules the day. That will not carry on forever. God has a plan to wrap all of that up and usher in a literal thousand-year kingdom, and then after that, a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. This is God's plan. Now, as we think about the book of Joel, 
as I preach that to a group of people, I'm sure even many of you may not have the same view of Joel, right? The book of Joel, the Old Testament prophets, specifically the minor prophets, even the major prophets, um, there's different views of how we're to take these books. I mean, we've seen that. We've talked a little bit about that. Again, some people look at the book of Joel or the book of Hosea, uh, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Daniel, and say, well, this isn't speaking of a future reality, future to us today. Some in the church say, look, Israel rejected their Messiah. He came the first time. Israel rejected him. So all the promises to Israel are off. They've been canceled by God. Israel, in a lot of people's minds in the church, they blew their chance. They had the opportunity for this to be true about their nation. They rejected Christ. Therefore, God rejected them and replaced them with the church. And we've talked about replacement theology, also known as covenant theology, also known as amillennialism or even postmillennialism. These are views that say Israel has no place in the future plans of God. They're done. They're washed up. They're just a country with a flag with the Star of David on it. That's all they are today. There's nothing about Israel. Now, one of the reasons and one of the, I guess, one of the, the ways they justify this view kind of goes back to what we saw last week. Look at, back at Joel 2, verse 28. Uh, we, all, we spent most of our time in these verses. And in Joel 2, verse 28, we read, And it will be afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male slaves and female slaves, I will, I will in those days pour out my spirit. And I will put wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. Most people who take a view of replacement theology, the end of Israel, the rejection of Israel, who take a post-mill or amill look, look at Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, and they say, Peter quoted that in the book of Acts, therefore it was fulfilled in the book of Acts, therefore God is done with Israel. He's fulfilled this prophecy. And yet, that's not the case. Peter used that as an example of God's faithfulness to pour, always pour out a, his spirit upon a remnant of Israel. There were Israelites in, in Peter's day that believed in Messiah. They were very few in number, but God did pour his spirit out on them. He certainly poured his spirit out on us Gentiles in the church age. But the fulfillment of that verse didn't occur in the book of Acts. That's not where that fulfillment of Joel 2.28 occurred. We, we wait the future pouring out of the spirit. And we went to the book of Revelation and talked about this. God will pour his spirit out on Israel as a whole. There will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will also preach and lead to more conversions. And so we're not seeing the fulfillment. In fact, if you just look at verse 30 of Joel 2, right? Wonders in the sky, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the, blue, the moon and the blood on that great and awesome day, right? When God pours out his spirit. That didn't occur in Acts. That didn't occur in the book of Acts. There were no wonders in the sky, no blood, fire, smoke rising in the air. There was no darkening of the sun or the moon in that day. In fact, the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church in Acts 2, it did, it did occur, was nowhere close to a global phenomenon. Most people didn't even notice what happened in that day and when the Holy Spirit came as tongues of fire. But even greater than that, what we need to understand is that Israel wasn't restored in that day. That's the promise of Joel 2. The promise of Joel 2.28 is the restoration of Israel, the beginning of the restoration of Israel. 
And Israel wasn't restored in the book of Acts. They continue to be a a mocked country, a ridiculed country. And in some ways we understand that. They haven't embraced their Messiah. The book of Romans says they're under partial hardening. They're under partial hardening. And that's absolutely true. They have been hardened. That was a temporary judgment of God because of their rejection of Christ. It's not that God said, oh, you rejected Jesus, no big deal. No, God did partially harden Israel. And that hardening has lasted 2,000 years. They're still being hardened toward their Messiah. But I assure you, based upon the word of God, that hardening will not last forever. And Joel previews that. Joel talks about that. We saw that in the book of Revelation. There will be a pouring out of God's spirit upon Israel. They, there will be many saved in Israel. And we looked at that um, in Revelation chapter 8, chapter, uh, chapter 7, chapter 8, as we went through those passages. That period of the restoration of Israel will begin kind of toward the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation period. Not sure exactly at the midpoint, but somewhere around the midpoint of those seven years, Israel will have the Spirit of God poured out upon them as a nation. And again, that will happen during a time of great global catastrophe. There will be upheaval in the world. There will be wars and famine and pestilence. And God will pour his spirit out upon Israel. And they will become, for the first time, world evangelists. They will proclaim Christ to the nations. And God will save many. We saw that in the book of Revelation. You see, God's word to Israel in Joel 2.28 stands. It stands today. It has not been altered by the church. It hasn't been applied to the church. It hasn't been broken by Israel's rejection of Christ. The word of God ultimately is not dependent upon the actions of man. God's word is dependent upon his character only. And God told Abraham, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you a land, and Israel has yet to experience all the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant, all the promises, even in the book of Joel. But that day is ahead. Right? We can't judge Israel by man's standards and by what Israel has done. Israel is to be judged by God's character, which is unchanging. It is to be judged by God's word, which is unalterable. All right, God will keep his word. And we've seen that all throughout the book of Joel. Every verse of the Old Testament prophets to Israel will be kept. Every promise will be granted and every prophecy fulfilled. Just because God hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it. And that's where the struggle comes in for a lot in the church. Well, he hasn't done it yet, right? Israel must be done. It's been that long and he hasn't done it yet. Well, we need to understand uh, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. But God will keep his word. And that's what we're looking at in the book of Joel, right? It's not an Old Testament prophet that we can discard. It's an Old Testament prophet that speaks to a day future to us. A day of Israel's ultimate judgment. They will be judged in the tribulation period, but they will ultimately be restored as God's spirit is poured out on them. Now, I didn't say this last week, but obviously, when God pours his spirit out on Israel, the object of that is not to make them evangelists. That will be a result of that. The object of God pouring out his spirit upon Israel is the same object of why he poured his spirit out upon your life. And what was that? To point you to Christ. To elevate Christ. This is what the Spirit does, right? He points us to Christ. And so when the Spirit is poured out upon Israel in that day, they will embrace Christ as Messiah. They will look upon the one that their ancestors pierced, and they will mourn for him as an only son. They will say, what in the world were our ancestors thinking? This is our Messiah. And so clearly that will be the ultimate aim of God when he pours out his Spirit upon Israel. 
Now, as we move to Joel chapter 3 tonight, right, in a sense, all that's in the past, right? When we've been looking at the seven-year tribulation period, we've been talking about the trouble that comes to Israel. First of all, they will have a little bit of peace in that first three and a half years. Then they will be saved by the Lord. Then they will evangelize the world, see other Jewish salvation, more Gentile salvation. But as we move to the very end of that seven-year period in Joel chapter 3, what we're going to see is that God will finally, once and for all, deal with Israel's enemies. The enemies of Israel have been a thorn in their side forever, right? You read the Old Testament, right? Israel's plagued by the Egyptians. They're they're plagued by the Philistines. They're plagued by the Moabites, right? This is a story of Israel. Even today, Right? We look at Israel, and again, we don't need to confuse ethnic Israel with national Israel, but Israel today is plagued by its enemies. I mean, there are countries today that if they had the power to wipe Israel off the map tonight, they would pull the trigger. Right? Israel's always been plagued by the paganism of other nations, the unbelief of other nations. But in Joel chapter 3 tonight, Joel gives us a preview of what that judgment will look like when Israel's enemies are finally judged. And so... I didn't give a title to Jonathan tonight, but if all of chapter 3, we're not going to have an outline. All of chapter 3, I simply entitled The Salvation of Israel. The Salvation of Israel, really the salvation of the Lord. We've looked at kind of a snapshot of that. We've talked about how the, the, the locust play was a preview of that. But now we're going to look at the true salvation of the Lord, right, in Joel chapter 3. Now, when you hear the word salvation, your mind immediately goes to spiritual salvation, and it should. And Israel will have spiritual salvation. That's what Acts chapter 2, verse 28 is about. It's about the spiritual salvation of Israel. God's spirit is poured out. Israel will be saved. They will have their sins forgiven. They will look upon Christ. They will believe in Christ. But I also want to encourage you and remind you, when we think about salvation, salvation also includes a deliverance from human enemies as well. There will be a deliverance from human enemies in Israel. And that will be true of all of us as God's people. We will be delivered ultimately from wicked people. That's a promise of salvation. In fact, uh, just turn to Psalm 73. You can flip back. Find Psalm 73. It's a psalm you need on speed dial. We've looked at it as a church before on numerous occasions. It's just a psalm that will bring you comfort in the worst of times. Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a, a psalm by Asaph. And, and, and in Psalm 73, Asaph is, is problemed. He's bothered by a reality in the world. He's bothered by a reality in the world that bothers you tonight. Okay, And Asaph is simply bothered by the fact that wicked people always seem to get ahead. Asaph lives right. Asaph tries to obey the Lord. And every time he looks around, the wicked are just winning everything. And so look at verse 1 in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, this is Asaph speaking, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a real problem, right? You try to live righteous, you try to obey the Lord, and everybody who doesn't obey the Lord seems to get rich and get famous. They don't have any problems in life. 
And in verses 4 to 11, I'm not going to read this, but in verses 4 to 11, Asaph describes the prosperity of the wicked. They're rich, they're famous, they're healthy, they get everything their heart desires. And Asaph's really bothered by it because all he's doing is getting behind in the world. Look at verse 12 of Psalm 73. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He said, look, this, Lord, I can't take this. What in the world's going on? But in verse 17, the whole mood of Psalm 73 changes. Right? Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. That would be the end of the wicked. Surely you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. You know what Asaph says? And I know we want to sound spiritual as the church, right? Asaph says, I can't wait for the day when you deliver me from wicked people. I can't wait for that day. That's what Asaph is talking about right here in Psalm 73. It bothered me. But Lord, I find comfort when I go into your sanctuary. I hear your truth. I understand that you're sovereign over all this. And I understand you will have your way with the wicked. That's where Asaph found comfort in all this. That one day his enemies would be dealt with. Now we understand the enemy of our heart is not everybody around us. The enemy of our heart is our own sin that's in our heart. Right? But there's also a need to be delivered from a wicked world and wicked people. And Asaph says, I understood that when I came into your sanctuary. Psalms 37 is kind of the same psalm. It's not by Asaph, but it's by David. David had the same problem. David had the same problem. David says, I try to live right, try to do the right thing. The wicked get ahead. Here's what Psalm 37, 7 says. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there one reality of the end of times is that it will be the end of wicked people now again i understand we should have a love and we should pray for unbelievers we should pray for our enemies and not persecute them but there's also the reality in life that there will be relief for righteous people from the wicked people of the world and for israel specifically that meant an end to all the wicked nations around them and so if you go back to Joel chapter 3, that's exactly what Joel chapter 3 is about. It is a preview, not of 800 B.C. and the judgment God would bring to the nations. It's a preview of a coming judgment where God will judge all the nations who have aroused his anger because they've mistreated Israel. That's what Joel 3 is primarily concerned with. Israel was saved at the end of Joel chapter 2, and now Israel in Joel chapter 3 will be delivered from their enemies and that's always been a desire in their heart they've always had that desire in their heart now what i'm going to do is finally get to the text i'm going to read the entire chapter to us all right we're going to look at and i'm going to read all 21 verses so just follow along with joel chapter 3 that's kind of a setup let you know what it's talking about and it's not just god dealing with that at the very end of this chapter we'll see god's blessing of israel but primarily that's what's going on 
in the opening verses here. So follow along. This is Joel 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my desirable treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and the sons of Jerusalem to the sons of the Greeks in order to remove them far from their borders, behold, I am going to rouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for Yahweh has spoken. Call out this message among the nations. Set yourselves apart for for a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the men of war approach. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Send in the sickle, for the harvest harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And Yahweh roars from Zion and gives forth his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a strong defense to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God dwelling in Zion my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will be in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of Yahweh to the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a desolation and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. Indeed, Yahweh dwells in Zion. And again, the quickest way to understand the context and the truth of Joel chapter 3 is to recognize that day has never occurred in the history of Israel. That day's never occurred. Israel hasn't seen that vengeance of the Lord against their enemies since Joel wrote about it. And so when people come and say, ah, this has been fulfilled. This is just instructions about the church's victory. Well, we're totally abusing the text, right? This is addressed to Israel. It's a promise to Israel. And so they await fulfillment of Joel chapter 3. Even though Joel wrote it in 800 B.C., even though Jesus addressed this same situation in Matthew 24, 
Even though John talks about it in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, right? This is still a future reality. It's not something that has occurred. Joel writes about it, previews it, it's repeated again in the New Testament. And so as Joel writes about previous judgment in his day, present judgment in his day, he's also writing about future judgment and future restoration. Now, again, as we think about the events of the end times, right, we often think Revelation is the only book that describes the end times, but that's not the case, right? I went through a list of books that address end times issues, and certainly we see in Joel chapter 3 something that's described that is future, this judgment of God in the future, this judgment of the nations. And again, this occurs in the book of Joel after Israel's salvation, Right, But prior to, and really in concert with, the second coming of Christ. Somewhere in the middle, God will save Israel. They will preach to both Jews and Gentiles. Millions of Jews and Gentiles will be saved in that day. But right here, as Israel is saved, the tribulation doesn't stop. Trouble keeps coming. But at the end of the tribulation period, we see God begin to restore the fortunes of Israel by dealing with Israel's enemies. Now, as we think about that reality, again, primarily their salvation is in view in the book of Revelation. That's really the point of it. But we can't bypass how God also deals with Israel's enemies. Now, as we think about the book of Revelation, we started looking at some of the judgments in the book of Revelation that really kind of began near the midpoint of the tribulation period. We talked about seal judgments. Uh, We talked about trumpet judgments that will follow the seal judgments. Well, toward the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 16, come seven bold judgments. And so what we read right here in Joel chapter 3 describes something that's also described in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 16. Right, set your bookmark in Joel 3. We'll be back and forth. But turn to Revelation 16 for a second. We're following the flow of the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, which begins with the Antichrist signing a treaty with Israel to kick off the tribulation period. The first three and a half years are relative peace. The first seal of judgment goes out, and and it's a, a rider on a horse. He has a bow but no arrows, and yet he conquers the world. How do you conquer the world if you don't have an arrow? Well, you conquer them through a false sense of peace. Antichrist will bring a false sense of peace to the world. But as we get toward the midpoint of the tribulation, Antichrist turns on Israel, demands that Israel worship him. And that's when God begins to deliver Israel, begins to bring spiritual salvation, what we saw in Joel chapter 2. But the tribulation doesn't end. It continues. And now in Revelation 16, we're really at the very end. We're knocking on the door of the second coming. The world is in chaos. There's been seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments. Again, these are catastrophic natural disasters, asteroids, meteorites, plagues, famine, pestilence. I mean, the world is literally falling down around uh, the people that are remaining on the earth. But then God's going to pour out a series of bold judgments. Now, those bold judgments happen to coincide with what we see in the book of Joel, these judgment of the nations. But let me just read a few of these to give you a picture 
Right? We're at the very end, most likely, of the seven-year tribulation period. And here's what's about to occur. This is Revelation 16.1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl in the sea, and it became like blood, like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. This is where, you know, people always struggle with the book of Revelation. They're like, it's so hard to understand. Do you know what sores are and all, uh, all the sea turning into blood and things dying? Sure you do, right? Read it literally. There's literal truth right here, right? This is what God's doing. Verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you. Who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Again, what is this? This is judgment of wicked people. Uh, verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. I'm not trying to be silly. That's true global warming right there. Right? That's true global warming. Right? The sun sends forth heat and scorches people. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed at their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Again, the hardness of man's heart in this day will be incredible. The world will fall down around them, and they'll still blaspheme God. Right? That's the depth of depravity of man's heart. And so all of creation's being undone, but there's still two more bold judgments to come. And in bold judgment number six, we see a preview, a picture, a great parallel with Joel 3. Look at bold judgment number six. This is Revelation 16, 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Who are the kings from the east? I went to seminary to learn this. They are the kings from the east. That's who's coming, right? The center of the world is Jerusalem, so the kings of the east are kings from the east that are coming from the east to surround Jerusalem. And we'll get more detail. Look at verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's your unholy trinity. The beast is Satan. I mean, I mean the beast is the Antichrist. The dragon is Satan and the false prophet is the false prophet. Right? There's the unholy trinity in the, in the tribulation period. So out of come their mouth three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. And here's why. To gather them together for the war on the, of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. All right, and here's where the kings are gathering, right? Verse 16, and they gathered, that would be the kings of the east, the kings of the world, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. So the sixth bold judgment toward the very end of the tribulation period enables the unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet to use their tongues. And again, the Antichrist will be known by his, he's a smooth talker. We've already seen that description in the book of Daniel. They will use their tongues to coax all the kings of the world to gather at Armageddon. 
Now, there is a true valley right there, the plain of, I always say, Ezdelaron. It's a plain. It's a really a valley in northern Israel. Um, but the picture here is a gathering of the world's kings in Israel. Truly, they're going to surround Jerusalem to begin with. Now, why did the kings of the world come? They hate Israel. We know Antichrist hates Israel. We know Satan hates Israel. But God will induce all the hearts of all the kings at the end of the tribulation to gather against Israel. Remember, what has Israel been doing? God poured his spirit out on them. They've been believing in Christ, and they've been preaching Christ to the nations. So now they're an object of the world's wrath, right? You think you're an object of the world's wrath, church, because you preach Christ? You ain't seen nothing yet. Israel will become an object of the world's wrath, so all the kings of the world will gather at Armageddon, and they will have a common desire to wipe Israel off the map once for all. In fact, some suggest maybe they're all frustrated with Israel's God. I mean, this is the God who's calling the world to fall down around us, so we'll just go eradicate them, and we'll eradicate their God. In fact, that will be in their hearts. We'll see that in the text. And why does the Lord gather the nations? What's going on here? He's gathering the nations for what Joel said. He's gathering them together so that he can judge them at one place in one time. He pulls all these nations of the world together at the end of the seven-year tribulation period because he is going to judge them. And what will be the basis of his judgment? How the nations have treated his people, Israel. Now, how do we know that? Because way back in Genesis 12, God goes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bring a nation from your loins. I'm going to bring a blessing to the entire world from you, Abraham. But what does God also tell Abraham way back in Genesis 12? This is Genesis 12, verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now, this judgment at the very end of the tribulation period will be related to how the nations have treated Israel. How have they blessed Israel? How have they abused Israel? And mainly it will be abuse. When you hear the end of the tribulation period, there will be nothing but abuses, and they will gather. And God is about to curse those nations. Now, flip back to Joel 3. <clears throat> flip back to Joel 3 really quick. We see this description of that judgment. Joel 3, verse 1. For behold, in these days and at that time when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. What is that? What is the restoration of the fortunes? When God pours his spirit out of them. When God saves them, when God makes them into evangelists in the seven-year tribulation period. And then here's what happens. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. Now you see Jehoshaphat there, the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's kind of a mystery. People debate what Jehoshaphat is, this valley. It's most likely, and I think even Jewish scholarship would put the Valley of Jehoshaphat, really the Kidron Valley. You know, we talked about it this morning. If you, think about, if you think about Israel lying south to north, right? And if you think about the temple lying south to north, right on the Temple Mount, on the eastern side of the temple, uh, it's built really on a hill, a ravine, and it falls off on the eastern side of the temple into the Kidron Valley. And again, it's not a huge valley. But there's a fall down, and it's the, the, the Kidron Valley. Jesus walked across the Kidron Valley on his way to the Mount of Olives the night before his execution, his crucifixion. Um, that Kidron Valley, most scholars believe, is another name for the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's, it's really a valley that runs, it kind of starts a little bit northeast of Jerusalem, and it runs all the way down, north to south, all the way to the Dead Sea. 
And generally speaking, most people have put the Valley of Jehoshaphat as that Kidron Valley. And so what's the picture here? This is all the armies of the world gathering around Jerusalem. They are surrounding Jerusalem. Right? And what is their plan? To attack Jerusalem. Right? That's why they're gathering here. And so Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. In other words, he will gather them into a valley to judge them. And what will the nations be judged for? We talked about their treatment of Israel. Look at Joel 3, verse 3. Here's some of the specific sins against Israel over the years. They, that would be the nations, have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Don't think that human trafficking is new. It's as old as time. It's always been a great sin. It's a great sin in our world today. It was a great sin against Israel. Right? Boys and girls traded for other sinful activities. Moreover, verse 4, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my desirable treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Jude and the sons of Jerusalem to the sons of the Greeks in order to remove them far from their borders, behold, I'm going to rouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. And I will also sell your sons and your daughters to the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for Yahweh has spoken. In other words, they will be judged. These nations will be judged for their past sins against Israel. There will be judgment upon the nations. So just like the pouring out of the sixth bowl of judgment, God calls the nations to come, and when they come, he judges them. And look at verse 9 of Joel chapter 3. Call out this message among the nations. They're gathered around Jerusalem. And here's what the Lord says. Set yourselves apart for a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the men of war approach. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves. There, bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused up and come to the valley, up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Send in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. Right? All the deception of the Antichrist and Satan will bring all the nations and God will then judge them. And what will be the deception of the Antichrist? What will be the sweet words, the, 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 the spirit like a frog on uh, Antichrist's tongue? He will convince the nations they can defeat God. He will convince the nations they can defeat God. All this language right here, I've, I've heard when, when you look at verse 10 of, of Joel 3, I've, I've heard this verse uh, uh, just misapplied so many times. Verse 10 about beating your plowshares into swords and your pruning hook into spears is not about God's people doing that. That's about the nations doing that. right? The self-deception is that the weak man in the world will think he can overcome God. That's the bold judgment, right? A, a great judgment upon the world is self-deception. It's a very powerful judgment where people believe what's not true. And in this day, the nations will think they can take down Israel's God. They think they can defeat Yahweh, right? And again, this is a work of God's judgment upon the nations. And so at the end times, the world's armies will gather outside Jerusalem. And just in case, 
Y'all think there's all crazy bud making this stuff up in the book of Joel and applying it to the book of Revelation. I'll give you a couple other passages to consider. You don't have to turn there if you, unless you want to. But Zechariah describes the same situation. Zechariah 12. Here's Zechariah 12 too. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Right? Zechariah wrote about that. Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Right? Zechariah talks about this day. Joel talks about this day. John talks about this day in the book of Revelation. It's everywhere in Scripture. A future day where Israel is surrounded. Specifically, Jerusalem is surrounded. And so how will that go for the nations? Look at back at Joel, verse three, Joel 3, verse 15. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, and Yahweh roars from Zion and gives forth His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but Yahweh is a refuge for His people and a strong defense to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And so the nations gather against Israel. They're pulled out of all the world to come to Jerusalem. They load up on their warships, they make their way up to Jerusalem, all the nations surround Jerusalem in this day, and Israel in that day, remember they're a saved people, they're preaching Christ, they're a defenseless nation, they will wonder what in the world they're going to do, and what's the point of all of this, it's two-pronged, number one, for God to judge all the nations, and number two, for God to prove to Israel that he is truly their God, he will keep them safe and secure, even though they're surrounded on all fronts in Jerusalem. This is Zechariah 12, verse 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with, with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord will also save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Right? This is detail after detail in Joel and Zechariah and Revelation of a future day where Israel will be delivered from their enemies. Zechariah 14 verses 2 to 5 gives us incredible detail. You're going to love this. So we read in Joel, right? If you look in Joel um, verse 16, Joel 3, 16, Yahweh roars from Zion. Guess who's doing the roaring? Which person of the Trinity is doing the roaring in Zion? None other than Christ. Listen to Joel 14, verses 2 to 5. I mean, I'm sorry, Zechariah 14, verses 2 to 5. 
For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the men and women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azil. yes you will flee just as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him right there's a description in Zechariah of Revelation 19 who comes and descends upon the Mount of Olives none other than Christ our Savior who will come as a conquering king He will be the one whose voice is roaring from Zion. Again, as God, Christ will engage in the battle with the nations. The armies of the world will be gathered before him. And the book of Revelation says all he does is speak. A sword of the word from his mouth slays the nations. That's the voice that speaks. That's the voice that Joel talks about 800 years before that voice is ever heard on earth. Because the Holy Spirit inspired Joel to write of Christ. Zechariah writes of Christ descending and ending this battle in Jerusalem. In fact, Luke 21, Jesus talks about this event himself. You can make a note in the margin right there in Joel 3, but in Luke 21, this is verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. We just read about that in Zechariah. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. We just read about that in Zechariah. And those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to, his, to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in in the sun and moon and stars and on earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, this is Luke 21. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory, right? This is Christ descending upon the world in that day, setting foot upon the Mount of Olives, ending the siege of Jerusalem. He will eventually make his way up to northern Israel. Well, there will be more battles of Armageddon, and Christ will slay the kings of the earth. And Joel writes about this. Zechariah writes about this. John writes about this. This future restoration, protection of Israel. And then let's finish off Joel. Joel has talked about the tribulation period, the salvation of Israel. Joel's talked about the redemption of Israel from their enemies at the end of tribulation. And then the book of Joel ends with the millennial kingdom. Right Once Christ, Christ returns, he establishes a kingdom, a literal kingdom upon this earth. His headquarters, his throne will be in Jerusalem, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And Joel writes about it. This is verse 18 of Joel chapter 3. And it will be in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of Yahweh to the water to the to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a desolation, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. 
because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. And I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged. Indeed, Yahweh dwells in Zion. There's a preview of a day when Israel finally sees the fulfillment of all the promises of God that God made to Abraham, that God made to Isaac and Jacob and David and to all the prophets. And all this language is really a sharp contrast to how the book of Joel starts. How does the book of Joel start? Drought, famine, no grapes to drink wine, no grapes to offer a drink offering to the Lord, grains gone because of a real locust plague in Joel. And yet Joel moves from that real locust plague in his day to a restoration of Israel in his day of their repentance to a future judgment of Israel and ultimately a future deliverance of Israel. And what do we see at the very end of the book of Joel? A future fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. The land will be blessed. And you see all the language here. Waters everywhere. A stream will flow from the temple in Jerusalem all the way to the valley of Shittim. The Valley of Shittim is supposedly one of the driest places on earth at the very top of the Dead Sea. And so God's blessing will be so abundant in Israel that even the trees and vegetation in that dry area will be watered from a stream that will flow from his throne all the way through Israel. But understand the focus of this final section is the promise that God made to Judah and Jerusalem. They will be inhabited forever. They're never going to have to leave their land again. They will be there, and Christ will be their king. And this will be a literal kingdom, and they will enjoy the blessings and promises of God for a literal thousand years. And why is that? Because God leaves none of his promises unkept. All right? God leaves none of his promises unkept. It's really sad a lot of times in the church when I see people play with God's word and say, well, he's already kept that promise. I don't want to speak for the Lord. I know the promises I read in Joel haven't been kept to Israel in full. Yes, God's blessed the church, no doubt. I'm a fruit of God's blessing in the church, there's no doubt. But has God replaced his people? Has he rejected his people? Has he broken his promises to his people? I will say with Paul, may it never be. May it never be. God established his covenant with Abraham and he will keep it. And we see the fulfillment of that in this kingdom. And the good part is, you church will be there enjoying this kingdom with Israel. God will be their God, and he has always and is our God today. Now, what does all this mean? And i got just a couple quick things. Y'all been patient. We've really drank out of a fire hose tonight looking at all of that. But I wanted to show you how this is not just some random book written by some random man that has no connection to Scripture. What Joel writes gives us a preview of things previewed in Scripture that are future to us. But what can we take with us tonight? I'll just give you a couple of quick thoughts. Number one. I've already said this, but understand Israel has a future. I know that sounds like an obvious truth. If you truly read the book of Joel literally, you'd say, well, sure they do. But there's many that don't see a future for Israel. And all I will say is simply this. If God did reject Israel, if God did replace his nation because of their great sin against him, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? I mean, if the basis of rejection is a, a, a sin against the Lord, we're all in great trouble. But God did harden them. They, did, they do feel consequences even this day. 2,000 years of hardening is a lot of judgment. But God is not done. They have a future. Israel's sin against God was great in their rejection of Messiah. But God's faithfulness to his chosen ones is greater. 
And then number two, God always has his way. I don't want to end with this because I know this is like a scary thought, but we live in a fallen world surrounded by fallen people, right? But I don't need to tell you, those wicked people can make life very difficult for God's people. They can make life very difficult for God's people. And the hard part is that God doesn't always bring immediate judgment, right? We want immediate judgment. Lord, they sinned against me. We want to be like James and John. Fire from heaven, the Lord, right? We don't get always immediate judgment upon our enemies. But I can assure you, the Lord has his final word against all of his enemies. And guess what? If you belong to the Lord, God's enemies are also your enemies. And though we pray for their repentance today, we preach the gospel to them today, we also understand in the end, the righteous will worship God because of his right judgment against evil. Right? We will be grateful for that judgment. And we will be delivered not only from our sin, but from those who sin against us and ultimately against the Lord. That's a great encouragement to my heart. I'm ready for that day, for sure. Let me pray for us tonight. Father, we're so grateful to go through the book of Joel to look at these events that you simply talked about thousands of years before they have occurred. And Lord, as we look at Scripture, um, our job is not to get confused by it, but to find confidence in it. You're the same God who wrote every book of it. And Lord, our job is simply to take your word, to study it, to apply it to our hearts, and to look for all the connections in Scripture. Because you're a God who certainly had a clear plan for the beginning of time. And you're also a God who has a clear plan for the end of time. As we gather tonight, we're simply thankful for Christ, the one who hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem so that our sins could be forgiven. Is also the one who will descend outside of Jerusalem. He will descend to the Mount of Olives and he will bring justice to all of his enemies. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the gospel. Lord, help us while time allows for us to be ambassadors for Christ, calling people to repent of their sins and to trust only in him. He is both Savior and King. And we praise him tonight in our hearts. And we ask this prayer in his name. And everybody said, amen. You have a good week. We'll see you all next Sunday night, Lord willing. Book of Amos. God bless you.